Good morning, brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 18. And we're going to read from the 28th verse, and we're going to read all the way down to the 16th verse of the 19th chapter. So would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After this, after he had said this, He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're continuing in our study of John's gospel, and as we start into this 18th chapter, and as I was thinking about an appropriate title for the sermon today, an old hymn came to mind by a man by the name of J.G. Deck, who lived from 1802 to 1884, and I'd like to use the words of a few of the verses of that hymn for our opening prayer. Would you bow with me, please? O Lord, when we the path retrace, which thou on earth hast trod, to man thy wondrous love and grace, thy faithfulness to God, faithful amidst unfaithfulness, mid darkness only light, thou didst thy Father's name confess and in his will delight. We wonder at thy lowly mind, and fain would like thee be, and all our rest and pleasure find in learning, Lord, of thee. Lord, by your word and spirit, touch our hearts, change us, make us more like Christ, for we ask it in his worthy name, amen. O Lord, when we thy path retrace, which thou on earth hast trod. That's really what we've been doing, isn't it? In our study of John's gospel, retracing the path that our Lord has trod over the last few months. And as we've done so many times, we have been in wonder and awe. Last week, we retraced the Lord's path from the upper room And we followed him over the brook Kidron to the garden where he was arrested. And we followed him from there to the court of the high priest. And today we'll follow him into the headquarters of the Roman governor Pilate. And here we will be humbled by the treachery of the Jewish leaders and the injustice and the cruelty of Pilate's court. But amid all of this unfaithfulness, like a rose amidst thorns, we see the unwavering faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful amidst unfaithfulness. Now, it goes without saying that we can't do justice to this passage in the time that we have, but following on with this theme of faithfulness in contrast to the unfaithfulness of the Jewish leaders in Pilate's court, 
I'd like us to consider this passage under three headings. A false consecration, a good confession, and a bad conscience. The Jewish leader's false consecration, Jesus Christ's good confession, and Pontius Pilate's bad conscience. Let me give you just a quick overview. The Jewish leaders consecrate themselves for the Passover by distancing themselves from the true Passover lamb, a false consecration. Jesus witnesses a good confession before Pilate as to who he was and why he had come. And 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 through this, he was sentenced to death. A good confession. And Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times and tries to release him, but under pressure acts against his conscience, leaving him with a bad conscience. And that's our outline for the sermon this morning. So let's start with our first point, a false consecration. Let me read again verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now Jesus had already stood before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and now the Jewish leaders decide to bring him before the Romans in an attempt to have them convict and crucify him. But when they get there, the Jews have a problem. It was the preparation for the Passover. And the next day, the Passover must be eaten. I take that from chapter 19, verse 14. Now, it was very important to the Jewish leaders that they be able to eat the Passover meal. So they didn't want to go into the defiled Gentile court, which would have rendered them ceremonially unclean. And so throughout the passage, you see Pilate, the Roman governor, who is presiding over this trial, going in and out of the headquarters, speaking to Jesus' accusers, and then going and speaking to Jesus, back and forth, back and forth, to accommodate the Jews who needed to remain outside so that they did not become defiled. I don't know about you, but I see a real irony in that. Whilst committing the greatest evil ever perpetrated by mankind, their only pang of conscience is ceremonial defilement from contact with a Gentile court. How incredibly twisted. You've heard it said, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's what they were doing. They were letting their conscience be their guide. But how is that working for them? You see, a conscience that has been repeatedly ignored and trained to call evil good and good evil is not a good guide. The conscience is only a guide to the degree that it is enlightened by the word of God. That incidentally is why our nation has fallen so far, so quickly, into so many foolish, hurtful decisions that a couple of years ago we would have considered unimaginable. And it's because this nation has turned its back on God. And it's 
collective conscience has been darkened, and nothing short of turning back to God is going to arrest this freefall. But there's something else about this false consecration that I want to consider with you this morning. They wanted to consecrate themselves for the Passover while they distanced themselves from the true Passover lamb. The Passover reminded them of their deliverance from Egypt. It also reminded them of how their firstborn had been spared by the blood of the Passover lamb that had been applied to the door of their homes. Now you know and I know that that Passover lamb was a picture of Christ himself. We have that in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So they didn't want to be in the same room as the Passover lamb so that they could keep the Passover. Now, if I had time this morning, I would take you back to Exodus 12. And we would read about the first Passover and the kind of involvement that those Jews in that day had with the Passover lamb. And we would read there how they set that lamb apart, a lamb of the first year, a male without blemish, a picture of Christ. They set it apart on the 10th day of the month and how they had to kill it on the 14th day of the month in the evening, just as Jesus came into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month and was killed in the evening of the 14th day of the month. How they had to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. Just having the lamb was not enough. Just killing the lamb was not enough. Its blood had to be applied to their home in order for them to be spared. How after applying its blood to the door, they had to take the lamb and roast it with fire. It could not be boiled. A picture of the fierce judgment that Jesus endured at the hands of God for sin. A judgment that could not be mitigated or measured. How they ate that roasted lamb with bitter herbs and had to burn before the morning light what they could not finish. A reminder that God will never fail to appreciate all of the work of Christ, even if his people do. How important that lamb was to them. How involved they were in preparing it and appropriating it to their need for deliverance, protection, and sustenance. But now, some 1400 years later, they have taken hold of the true Passover lamb, not out of a sense of their need, but out of a desire to rid themselves of him. And so they distance themselves from him, and they will have nothing to do with him. Even his execution, they turn over to the Gentiles and will not come into the judgment hall, but demand his execution from without, and all this so that, they might t- so that they might partake of that which he is a foreshadowing of. The irony is hard to miss. But this form of religiosity is all too common today, isn't it? This clinging to external forms while rejecting what they point to. But let me ask you a question this morning. I want to ask each one of us this question. What have you done 
with the true Passover lamb. I've said this many times before, and I'm going to say it again. There will come a time in your life and in mine where the only thing that will matter about your life is what you have done with Christ Jesus, the true Passover lamb. Well, we've talked about a false consecration. Let's talk about a good confession. And I want to read again from verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now the point here is, do you ask me this question in your capacity as one tasked with defending the interests of Rome? Or are you asking me this question because of the accusations of the Jews? Had it been the former, there was ample evidence to show that he presented no threat to Rome. When he had been asked about paying tribute to Rome, he had directed them to notice the inscription of Caesar on a penny and told them to render unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's and unto God the things that were God's. And when they had come in John 6 to forcibly make him king, he had withdrawn to a mountain by himself. He had not come to take his kingdom by force. But Pilate's response to Jesus' question made it clear that he was not asking out of a concern for Rome, but rather because the Jewish leaders had delivered Jesus up. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And so in verse 36, Jesus reveals to Pilate the true character of his kingdom and reveals that his kingdom posed no threat to Rome. In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now notice that Jesus does not say that my kingdom is not in this world, but that my kingdom is not of this world. It was, not, it was in the world, for he was in the world, and those who acknowledge his rule and reign were of that kingdom then and now. But his kingdom was not of the world in that it did not derive power in the way that kingdoms of this earth did, like Rome that gained power through military conquest. The proof of that was Jesus standing there before Pilate and that he had offered no resistance and that when Peter had tried to defend Jesus, Jesus had restrained him. Now, what kingdom of human origin would have no army to fight for their king? And what king would restrain his followers from taking up arms to defend him? So the character of his kingdom was fundamentally different from the kingdoms of this earth and was no threat to Rome. One day, his kingdom will be a physical kingdom that will fill the whole earth When he returns in power. But until then, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom recognized, as we said, by those who recognize his rule and reign. But the point here again is that his kingdom posed no threat to Rome's interest. And yet, he did not for one moment deny that he was a king. And this was not lost on Pilate, for he says in verse 37 So you are a king? 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, this statement by Jesus is what Pilate ultimately used to condemn him. Pilate found no fault in Jesus, to be sure. He said that three times. I find no fault in you. He said it in verse 38. He said it in verse 4. And he said in verse 7, I find no fault in him. But when he could not persuade the people to agree to his release, Pilate condemns Jesus on the basis of this good confession. Now, I want you to notice this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, references this when he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What is a confession? Well, it really comes from two words, two words that mean the same and to say. So literally it means to say the same thing. And when we see it in Scripture... It usually means to say the same thing as God about something. So when we confess our sins, we say the same thing about them as God says about them. We don't condone them, but we acknowledge them to be as filthy and ugly and defiling as he does, as he sees them to be. And when we confess Christ, we say the same thing about him as God says about him. He is Lord. But when it comes to Jesus' good confession, he confesses what God says about him, that he is king. Look at Psalm 2.6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus declaring that he was king before Pilate, with all its consequences, was the good confession. It was the truth about who he was and what he had come to do. And it was the charge that was written and put over him on his cross. Now, why did Paul point Timothy to the Lord's good confession before Pilate? I believe it was to show To show Timothy that a good confession is not just something that you say, but it's something that you live. It's not just a one-time thing. It can't just be made when it's easy. It has to be made when it's hard, when it costs you something to make it. Timothy had to fight the good fight till the end. And Paul points him to Jesus Christ, good confession, before Pilate as an example of this. Well, we've contrasted the Jewish leader's false consecration to Jesus' good confession. Now let's compare Jesus' good confession to Pilate's bad conscience. For our last point. So after Jesus declared that he was indeed a king and that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth, Pilate retorts, verse 38, what is truth? 
And then he walked away without waiting for an answer, as though it was a question without an answer. And with his back to Jesus, there was no answer. What is truth? What is reality? How do you distinguish it from lies and deception and the fake? You can't get an answer to that when your back is turned to Jesus. It's like being in a pitch black room. And you want to know the truth about where you can walk without stumbling over a chair or over a table. We've all been in that situation. But you refuse to turn on the light, so you continue to grope around in the dark. One night I was here in the church working, and it was, uh, it was rather late. It was about midnight. And I was working up in my little office there, um, and uh, I had forgotten something on the pulpit. And I, uh, I wanted to come down and get it. But I didn't want to go all back through the labyrinth of stairs here and come in the door like any ordinary person would do where the, the light switches are. So I decided to come through these doors where you see these little steps here. And it was pitch black in here. It's a little creepy. It's pitch black. But I felt that I knew the truth about where the edge of those stairs was. But you know, reality doesn't care what you think about the truth. And the next thing I knew, I was at the bottom of that organ pit there, on my back in some considerable discomfort. And at that moment, did I need someone to come along and to show me a floor plan of the sanctuary? No, I needed someone to turn the lights on. And Jesus does not stand in the midst of life's bewildering questions and say, I will tell you the truth. No, he says, I am the truth. And when we embrace him as Lord, we for the very first time have the ability to see things as they truly are. In his light, we see light. But when we turn our backs on him and see truth as an elusive, relative thing, we remain with Pilate in darkness, unable to distinguish between what is real and what is not, between what matters and what does not matter, and between what saves us and what destroys us. Verse 38 After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to to you the king of the Jews? Pilate was not deceived about the Jews' motives. He knew immediately when they first came to him that they had delivered him up out of envy. And he knew immediately that he should release Jesus. But he was afraid of the consequences of integrity. He wanted to release Jesus, but not so badly that he would put his power and position at risk over it. So he enters into a negotiation with the people. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. And Pilate assumed that the Jews would overlook their petty grievances with Jesus rather than having a man like him out on the streets. But he was wrong. They cried out again, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Then Pilate tried to assuage their bloodthirst by flogging Jesus and allowing his men to torment and abuse him. 
twisting a crown of thorns into a crown and putting on his head, putting on him a purple robe and ridiculing him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, they struck him with their hands. And then he brings him out to them and you can only imagine the shock and horror at seeing him in this condition. And I, I take it that Pilate's plan was to arouse enough sympathy that they would say, enough. But it only seems to intensify their bloodthirst. In verse 6 we read, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate says in verse 7, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He knew they couldn't. They didn't have the authority to put a man to death. So it was likely a sarcastic statement, ridiculing them for needing to get him to do their dirty work. But they respond, we have a law. I mean, what a strange thing to say. As they blasphemed, falsely accused, and were in the process of murdering their Messiah, now they appeal to the law? They say, according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, it's interesting to read when Pilate heard this saying, he was more afraid. What should that tell us? It should tell us that he was already afraid. Why was he afraid? He wasn't in danger of being crucified. He wasn't on trial. To all appearances, he was the one calling the shots here. But while he tries to use his position to intimidate Jesus into answering his questions, he is inwardly trembling while Jesus stands resolute and fearless as he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You know, one of the problems with people of power and wealth, and there's nothing wrong with wealth, But one of the problems is that they are often blinded to their own vulnerability until it is too late. And they must face God, the God they rejected all their lives, and realize for the first time that their power and wealth count for nothing. The well-known philosopher Voltaire, on his deathbed, said to his doctor, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. And when he was told that that was not possible, he said, then I shall die and go to hell. His nurse said, for all the money in Europe, I wouldn't want to see another unbeliever die. All night long, he cried for forgiveness. So never forget where power comes from and how quickly it can be recalled. And by the way, who started the rumor that all sin is equal? If you want a verse to disabuse you of that notion, you can find it here in verse 11. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sins. Not all sins, brothers and sisters, are equal. To be sure, Pilate was guilty of failing to use his power Justly and courageously, but, of, but how much guiltier was Caiaphas? Caiaphas had the position of high priest. He knew the law and the prophets. He even prophesied that one man should die for the people. How much guiltier was he? For he was conspiring treacherously to murder the one that every book of Scripture pointed to. 
So what is, if there are degrees of sin, what is the most serious sin? What is the most serious, the most damning sin? It's knowing the value of the blood of Christ and trampling it underfoot while continuously resisting the pleadings of the Spirit. That's what it says in Hebrews 10.29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? I tremble to think that there are some that are under the sound of my voice this morning that will stand before God having trampled upon the blood of Christ and having resisted the pleadings of the Holy Spirit. But you know the saddest thing about Pilate? I think is that he genuinely wanted to do the right thing. He did not want to crucify Jesus. He wanted to release him, and he would have if he could just have spared his position at the same time. And you know, it seems as we read this drama that Pilate was in a quandary for 23 verses over what he should do, but I think that the moment he allowed himself to consider the cost of integrity, he had already started his journey down the slippery slope of compromise from which there is no coming back. It's very serious. So what is the lesson from all of this? When you know the right thing to do, do it. Do it immediately without delay. The moment you sit on a decision that you know the answer to and allow yourself time to reconsider, you put yourself in a perilous situation. Herod does the same thing with John the Baptist. He arrests him and throws him in prison, yet he fears him. He knows he should release him. He knows the danger of withstanding this man of God and confining him to prison. But though he fears John, he fears his wife more. And with each day that passes with John in prison, Herod gets closer and closer to the point of no return. And then one day it happens. He gets carried away at a wild party, makes a rash promise to do anything he's asked, and the next thing you know, John's head is on a platter. And Herod has John's blood on his hands forever. Reuben did the same thing with Joseph. He knew it was wrong to participate with his younger brothers in throwing Joseph into a pit. But he goes along with it, proposing or purposing to spare him when the time was right. But that time never came, and the opportunity slipped away, and his brother was gone, and he had to face the consequences of his guilt for the rest of his life. And we could go on to speak of Felix, who knew he should release Paul, But instead he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. But that opportunity never came. And for all eternity, Felix will bear the consequences for this injustice. So the warning is this. When you know there is something you must do, something you must release, something for which you must repent, don't ever leave it till another day, for that day may never come. Eventually, the temptations we will not turn away from, we will embrace. Eventually, we reject the truth that we will not fully embrace. I want to conclude with this. As we gaze on the faithfulness of our Lord, in contrast with the treachery of the Jewish leaders, 
and the cowardly injustices of Pilate's court. How should we respond? I want to give you three questions to help you process this. First of all, have you embraced the true Passover lamb? Or do you draw near with your words while your heart is far from him? Have you been washed? Have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? Number two, are you witnessing a good confession before man? As one has said, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And number three, are you putting off today? Are you putting off doing what you know you must do? Perhaps it's repentance. Perhaps it's forgiveness. Perhaps it's separating from something that you know is pulling you down. Today is the day to set things right because we are not promised tomorrow. So with those three questions ringing in our ears, I want to pray, and I want you to pray with me, will we allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of conviction? So let's bow our heads. Lord, we sometimes sing, lift it up, was he to die? It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. Lord Jesus, this morning by faith, we look up into heaven and see you there, exalted high. We remember you as the one who was lifted up for us to die. And having been lifted up on that cruel cross, willingly for us to die, what is it that we would not lay down for you? What is it we would not lay down, Lord, for you? Convict us of this, we pray, by your spirit. And as we come to your table to receive, as from you, these emblems of your love, may we come as those who would hold back nothing from you. For we ask it in the powerful name, in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's come to the Lord's table together.